Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Keith Elias. It's great to be here. Sorry about the confusion. It was a crazy day, but I'm really, really excited to be with you. Great to have you here. And Keith, you and I met a little over a year ago with our good friend, Kyle Wilson. Yes. And for the folks on the line here, you may not know that name, Kyle Wilson, but Kyle was Jim Rohn International. So Jim Rohn is a, a well-known name. Uh, he really was kind of the, the, the godfather of the entire industry around self-improvement, self-help, one of the very first professional speakers. Uh, he was Tony Robbins' mentor. And, um, you know, Kyle's just an extraordinary individual. He's got a mastermind that I regularly participate in. We had our call last night, which was amazing. And uh, we had a chance to spend some great quality time with Keith uh, in Philly, uh, or actually in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, Keith, uh, there's so much to talk about. There's what a crazy time we're in right now. And yes. Maybe the place to start, why don't we start with getting just a little bit of your backstory? I know you're a Princeton graduate, not a school yep. typically known for producing football players. Uh, no, it's not. We uh, we don't specialize. And we specialize in sending folks to Wall Street or starting their companies and, you know, that sort of thing, or even even politics. But it's uh, it's if you put together all of the Ivy League schools, I think we're almost like uh, then we put as many folks in the NFL as like one regular school, right? But um, but it's a great place to go if you have the opportunity. It's a great education. You meet amazing people, and and there's there's great opportunity too. So uh, it's uh, I no regrets going there. It's one of the best decisions of my life. I love that. So you're not. I mean, people can't tell from just the headshot here, but you know, most football players are a whole lot bigger than you are. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Like you wouldn't have uh, followed me in uh, high school and, and little league and said this guy was going to be in the NFL. In fact, I remember growing up when I played little league football, they they'd say to my mom, "Oh, he's he's great in little league, but he won't. He's not big enough to play high school football." And then I was in high school football and you know made all state and actually was uh, the player of the decade in New Jersey. And but they still went to my mom and said, you know. You know, he's great in high school, but he'll never be able to play in college. And then, uh, you know, got a lot of scholarship offers from big schools like Iowa and Penn State, and uh, UVA and those types of places. And so then I went, uh, you know, I said went to Princeton and then ended up playing there for four years and then was a two time All-American. I led the nation in rushing my junior year. And so then they went to my mom and said, you know, maybe he can actually make it <laughs> if he keeps working hard. And uh, and then from there, we went to the, to the New York Giants, which was like a dream come true because I grew up in New Jersey and that was the home team. And so being able to go and play in your backyard where everybody can see you week in and week out. Um, it, it's just, you can't, you can't write that in. And, and so played there for a number of years and then finished up my, uh, my NFL experience in Indianapolis with the Colts. Um, you know, my last two years with the Colts were actually Peyton Manning's first two years with the Colts. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the time period. And, uh, and yeah, it was, you know, an amazing, amazing, amazing experience all the way around. Now, today you head up the player engagement department in the NFL. Yep. And your own journey 
coming into the NFL, leaving the NFL. T- tell us a bit of that story, because I think that's kind of central to why you're in that role today. Yeah, I think um, the the way we kind of uh, talk about it uh, is that it's it's like that it's like that movie Wizard of Oz, right? It's like playing in the NFL is like living in Oz. It's you have a, a group of uh, diverse individuals that have one mission, one goal, and uh, you know, and then all of a sudden when it's over, it feels like somebody kicked you back to Kansas, where it feels like it's black and white, and you're isolated, you're alone, you're in a tornado, and uh, and that's how it feels because you spend your whole life trying to um, get to this dream, this place. Uh, and then when you make it, in some ways, it's, it's better than you ever hoped. It's better than you could have possibly imagined. Uh, but in other ways, it's, it's a complete letdown, right? Because you, you have this thing up in your life that, man, playing in the NFL is going to solve all my problems. I'm going to be one of the kings of the world. You know, growing up, you have this idea that you're, you're you know, oh, I'm going to drive a Ferrari and, and date a model and be famous and have all this money. And, and then you get there and a certain of that becomes a reality, right? And that's when you realize that, man, this isn't it, right? Like, man, it's, it's like th- this isn't th- – I'm much more than just a football player. But at the time, it's like, man, no matter how much – money you have in the bank. It didn't give me peace or it didn't give me hope. No matter, you know, what the the girl looked like that I was dating, she couldn't make me really feel like a man. And so there was like a lot of these things that were a little bit of a letdown. Uh, And that takes you for a loop even while you are playing. And then when you're done, man, that's why they call the NFL not for long, right? So if you, uh, you played, even if you played 10 years, you wanted 11, you played three, you wanted four. And, uh, and it's, it's a whirlwind. So it leaves guys a lot of times in a place where they get into a dark place because you can't get back in. There's no like being an actor and then falling out of favor for a while and reinventing yourself. And when, when it's over for the NFL, it's truly over. And, uh, and, and that's difficult. Yeah, I can, I can certainly see that. And now, when someone's in the NFL, yeah, so much of their identity is wrapped up in being whatever it is, a New England Patriot, a New York Giant. And then when you're no longer in the league, what happens? I mean, there's this myth out there that, uh, I don't know what the time period is, and I'm probably misquoting it, but some some period of time after leaving the NFL, Players are, you know, bankrupt, divorced, drug yeah. addicts, fill in the blank. That's right. Right? Yeah. So I, there was this um, sort of erroneous statistic that came about in either a Sports Illustrator or ESPN um, article, but it, there was never founded in any truth. And I think it said something like within two years, 76% of the league is broke, unemployed, and divorced. Right? Um, but that, that's not true. But I will say that whether you leave with you know 40 million in your bucket or you or somebody that that was a practice squad guy that left with a couple of hundred thousand, I would say each of those folks go through a transition story that is unique to them. In fact, when we work with guys today as they transition, you know that old saying: if um, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Uh, with us, we we have a saying that says: if you've seen one, you've seen one. And a guy could could go 
like I said, leave with 40 million in his bucket and still be depressed, still not understand what's going on around him. Uh, and when a, and a player transitions, his wife, his significant other, his family, they have to transition as well. And, uh, and so it, it, isn't, it isn't easy, um, but that's why now, now the league wraps resources, uh, my, myself and my team, around guys as they do transition so we can lock arms with them and walk on that road to, uh, to, to help them to see what are the top 10 challenges of transition. You know, and, and they are, you know, transition is a part of life, right? I mean, people every day get the bad doctor's report. Every day they get fired. Every day there's, you know, divorces. And, and those, those transitions are a part of life. The thing about the NFL that makes it so acute is that it hits so many different areas of your life and impacts your family because when you make it to the NFL, it's like your family, it's like they made it to the NFL. And this whole community made it to the NFL. And so it hits you financially. It hits you in your identity. It hits you in your relationships. Um, and so we've identified these top 10 uh, transition challenges that guys go through and some of their responses from isolation and depression and anger and all those sorts of things. Um, because I'll tell you, you know, one of the most difficult things is to make it into the NFL and then not have the NFL experience that you wanted. And yet very few guys win the Super Bowl and walk off into the Hall of Fame. And so I would say 90 to 95% of us leave the game with what we call unfinished business. I didn't win the Super Bowl. You know, for me, me personally, it took me a long time to overcome the fact that I didn't feel like I got to show the world how good I really could be. Because the minute I got in the league, it was this torn ligament, this broken wrist, this, and I just spent so much time hurt. And then that ended up, you know, injuries ended up getting me out of the game. So like you said, it's a big man's game and I'm not a big man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you played running back, correct? Yes. And the, I mean, you guys take more than your fair share of, uh, of uh, pounding. <laughs> Yeah, well, especially when I played. Um, you know, I always say that, you know, playing in the league, the, the game, it ends when you're on the bottom of a pile of 300-pound guys. And for me in my career, it mostly ended on that bottom of a pile of 300-pound guys. But <laughs> when I played, the run game was an emphasis, and it was pounding the ball and doing that. Today it's a little bit more wide open. Would have loved to have played in, in this era of the game. Uh, it's really a spectacle to see. Uh, every year the, the NFL creates – innovative rules to make it even better and so uh yeah i think it's it's the league is is at an all-time high in terms of its competitiveness and its excitement um now we just have to see what happens this fall yeah of course so tell us a little bit your personal journey as you left the league what what was that experience like so i think the the first thing is uh a sense of complete failure right which you wouldn't think after having played six years of professional football that to that that feeling of of shame humiliation um fear too because now there was no income coming in and i was used to uh a salary that wasn't that 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 wasn't realistic right for for the life i was about to enter and so i think 
there's part of you that almost can be paralyzed. And we see that a lot with, with guys where, you know, or you can get depressed. And one of my friends says he wore his Green Bay Packer sweats for eight months straight and he called it the uniform of the depressed. But for me personally, I really felt that loss of identity. And then, so I, I needed to get off the couch and get that first, first job. And so I did, I started working with a real estate company called uh, Ivy Equities, uh, Ivy Realty now, and started putting together uh, limited partnership, you know, deals and, and making really good money, making really good money. I mean, it was great. It got me out of the house. It got me a new group of friends. Um, I was working in the tri-state area and, and, and was wild though, Victor, is that somehow in my heart, the money that I was making with the real estate company, I still wanted people to think that was money that I had that was from the NFL as if like that money had some sort of like more power because it was attached to that. My identity was attached to that my significance was attached to that. Um, and it took me a while to unwrap that and, and start to look at football as something that I did and not who I was. That, that, that is so powerful. And, you know, we as individuals, often struggle with that whole question of identity. Who am I? I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm an engineer. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate developer. I'm a football player, whatever that is. And when really at the core, I'm Victor and you're Keith. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like when you let go It was one of those things where you were, I was afraid that if I did let go of all of that, it would almost invalidate the journey. Like I had worked so hard to become this person. I was always the smallest. I always had to work the hardest. I was the first guy in the weight room. I was the last guy to leave. I had broken my body for this dream and somehow turn around and say, that's not who I was. It was almost a lie that said to me, if I admit that, then it invalidated my life up until that moment, until I finally let it go. And then there was this incredible peace, this incredible life that came into me that said, you are so much more than what meets the eye. And, and I felt like I had so much more to give to the world. And when, you know, and then I started to learn the things that I put my significance in, whether it was wealth, whether it was fame, whether it was football, that those things were all the wrong things. Even if you're successful, if you, if you identify yourself in that success, it leads to pride. And then I found in my life, at least, that I found that truest significance for me is being significant in the life of another person. And then that's when I began to uh, take time off to go speak at schools, um, started to get involved in anti-bullying groups, um, started to volunteer more at my church. Then I went, I went to Thailand after the tsunami. I went down to uh, New Orleans after the Hurricane Katrina and started to really find a bigger purpose. You know, and I always say, like, for me, I'm a, a person has a, a real, very real faith now that I didn't have when I played. Um, but I really feel like 
I am because of who God is and what he's done in my life. And that's, that's, that's now where I find my significance. And it's not in, in what I do, though I still have goals and dreams and hopes like anyone else. Um, but ultimately, every day, I try to create a habit where I do something selfless for somebody else. And, uh, and, and I think sometimes even forming good habits is better than having goals. You know, that, that's where it hits the road. And, and so that's what we try to help guys in their transition is help them form habits that lead to life. That, that's so awesome. You know, I told you this when you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, that when you and I first met and you shared with me your story, and in particular, how you reframed and you reset the context for your own life. Um, that had the same effect on me, uh, and and it had a it actually had a big impact on me. I made the decision that we were going to downsize our house. I mean, you know, my wife and I would forty five hundred square feet's a lot of house for two people, mm-hmm. uh, and we don't need it. And uh, so we've you know we we sold our house, um, and and it was it was the recognition. Not only did I not need it, I didn't need it to feel I didn't need it to feel as though I I had earned it or I didn't need it to feel better about myself or anything like that. Um, I was able to let go of it much in the same way you were able to let go of some of the material things that you had been attached to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's hard at first, isn't it? Um, but but when you fully let go, you realize like it's it's sometimes it's, it's not the stuff it's people's perception of you and the stuff. Right. And so I remember well, one of the things we do, we have this, um, this program called the bridge to success. It's really, um, your life after the game. Right. And we, we lead a lot of players through this transition program. And we, we have this one conversation around finances because, you know, odds are you're not going to make the same amount of money for the rest of your life. Right. right. And so, the first thing you tell them is downsizing isn't defeat, it's responsibility, hmm. right? And because, and, and when I met my wife, one of the things that she said to me was like, we want to have, we want to be a family that does and not a family that has, because at the end of the day, you'll remember experiences more than you'll remember things. And that, that resonated with me. Um, so what we do with our guys is we make we make a challenge and we tell them, when you get home, I need you to walk outside your door, right? Take a look to the right, to, to look to the neighbor on the right and take a look to the neighbor on the left and say these two magical words. We tell them, you got to say this. And they go out and we say, you win, you win. And it's like you're giving yourself freedom to get out of this unspoken competition that I am no longer in this rat race to compare myself by the car, the neighborhood, this or that. And I mean, when, when we started to do those types of things in our life, it just felt like the shackles came off. And to the point where after we first got married, my wife and I, we didn't know what we wanted to do, where we wanted to live. So we just got ourselves a little condo for the first year just to, you know, and I was almost um, a, a victim of fraud. And the police officer came over to the house to take my statement and they said, and they, this is one of those things they say, didn't you used to be Keith Elias? 
And I'm like, well, I, I think I still am, but that's kind of like that, right? It's like, didn't you used to be, didn't you? And they said, well, you played for the Giants. I'm like, yeah. And they were like, I'm like, you can say it. Why do I live here, right? Because they had this expectation that I should live in the mansion and the gated community. And I just didn't want it to live in a place. Now, if you can do that, hey, that's awesome. But if you do that and you're a slave to that, then I would suggest, man, getting rid of that stuff so you could be free and have fun and with your life. And I, I've had so many neat experiences with that now. And, and I got to explain to them, like, that's your expectation of my life, not my life. And so it was a really cool moment. You know, when I think you use the words living below your means. Yeah, that's wealth, right? It really is. Yeah. It really is. You know, Robert Kiyosaki talks about getting out of the rat race. And the key to getting out of the rat race is to have your income more than your expenses. And there's two ways to do that. One is to increase your income. And the second is to start with a lower expense base. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, you can own your possessions, but how often do they own you? Mm. That's true. We, uh, we always tell the guys, it's, man, it's not what you make. It's how much you keep. That's, that's the difference. And the only difference between like a, a guy making $10 million, a guy making a million dollars is the zero at the end if he's in debt. And, you know, and so it's better to live your life beneath your means than it is to then try to impress the neighbors with what car you drive or what house you have or any of that kind of thing. I love that. I love that. So you went out of real estate, you're back at the NFL, you're mm -hmm. helping players coming into the game, you're helping players leaving. Uh, of course, right now we're in an incredibly strange time when players come into the NFL, it's for a fixed contract, whatever it is, three years, five years. So the meter's running mm -hmm. uh, and nobody's playing. Boy, and I tell you, every day it's, we're starting to walk on eggshells here. And um, I mean, just the announcements this week with the World Health Organization, the, the fact that at least it, it seems so difficult to find real information about what the virus is and what it's doing and who it will affect. And, um, and so every day it seems there's a new contingency plan that crosses my proverbial desk that says, okay, this is what it looks like without fans. This is what it looks like if we skip preseason. This is what it looks like if, you know, um, and so I think what I'm hoping for is that, well, first, everything's virus dependent, obviously, sure. and the players and the coaches and their safety. And But, I mean, we're already going to talk about, like, stripping down the sidelines, limiting pe people's access to the clubs, quarantining as much as, as possible. Um, but we, we want to play the season. Uh, and I think uh, the players do because, like you said, man, this this is a game where the the average uh, the average career, if you want to call it that, it's not a career. We call it an experience, right? Is is three years if wow. you're that's on the, the high end, right? And if you make it more than more than one, um, it is it is you can get up to five years, right? But if you pull a year out of that, oh my goodness, it's it's like man, that's, some of these guys are looking to, to get a base on life. And man, if you take a year out of that, it's, it can be devastating. And, and plus, 
they're under contract. So there's limit limitations as to what they can do outside of it. And so I think the owners want the game to be played, obviously, um, and certainly do so do the players, you know, and I think the country does. We, when we really need some good news in, in our country right now, it's been devastated by um, the virus and social injustice. And it's, this would be such a great gift to, uh, to be able to get back to some, some semblance of normalcy. Well, even the NFL hasn't escaped the whole uh, controversy of social injustice. Um, how is that being dealt with now? How, how, you know, the players you talk with? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's on the forefront of everyone's mind, whether, I mean, it's whatever your race is, when you're in a locker room, one of the greatest things about being on a team is all of that is so secondary. I don't care if, if you're black, I don't care if you're Hispanic, I don't care if you're Asian, like we need to beat the Jets and that's our job. And so there's something so beautiful about a locker room. And, and I've always said when people would say to me is, why don't the player just go and play? Just do your job and go play. Like, why are you talking about all these social things? And I said, man, if you could get in the locker room and you can hear the conversations and you could see the brotherhood that is developed, then you would know that this is the ideal place to have these discussions. Because there's no other way in my life that I'm going to meet a Dwight Hollier, right, or a Darrell Young, except in that, in that locker room. And then when we chew that same dirt, now there's a brotherhood that exists that is difficult to understand because it isn't just playing a sport. It's freaking hard. And you're battling every day against these guys and with these guys. And so then – and then – you begin to share your heart, you share your soul, you share your past. One of my best friends in the league, who, when this all happened, he shared me, he shared with me his story of that when he went and signed his contract and started playing in the city, that he got pulled over eight times his rookie year. He got pulled over by the police eight times just to check if he owned the car. I don't have that experience. Right. I don't I got pulled over one time in my hometown because the police officer recognized me and wanted my autograph. Right. <laughs> that was my experience with the police. And yet I can't I can't turn a deaf ear to his story and his plight because he is my brother. Right. 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 You know, I, I love that story because that really speaks directly to the experience. Mm -hmm. It really does. The players have been off for a while now. I guess in some respects, not that different than the off season. How do they stay fit physically, mentally? Are they taking their foot off the gas in your experience? Are they, are they still training at a high level? Absolutely. And I think um, people are worried about the, the preseason games being canceled. And, you know, between you, me, and the wall and the recording here, the, the, the NFL no longer needs preseason games in terms of the training regimen. These guys are professionals all year round. They come into camp in shape. They'll be in shape. I don't know what it's like mentally right, right now, uh, at least from my experience. But what I've talked to is guys are desperately want to get into camp and get this thing going. Um, and that's hard. The uncertainty is hard. Uh, also for the young players, 
So the way it works is they usually bring 90 players into camp and the first cuts, they cut down to 75 and they end up 53 man roster. So, but there's whispers, there's, there's talk that some clubs are, aren't going to start with the 90 players. They're just going to bring in 75. And so there's a lot of anxiety among guys who like, I'm not even going to get my chance to play because they're going to limit exposure. And we call them guys on the bubble, guys that may or may not make it. That's a tough situation to know that you don't even get to give it a shot if you've never been on a roster before. So um, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I know sometimes the constant piece of working out is, is healthy. And our guys, are, they're working out, they're staying in shape, and, uh, and they want to come in and play. No, that's that's great. And um, you, talk a little bit about you get to in your current role. You get to see a lot of the different locker rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. I know we've got a few football fans amongst the uh, the group here. What are some of the differences? You know, Patriots versus yeah. Seattle. Yeah, night. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're night and day. And so I think that is the the best part of my job is that the minute you walk into an organization you get a sense of their culture. And that's where I've, I've just become a student of leadership, a student of culture. And honestly, I can spend a couple of minutes in a, in a, in a locker room, a couple of minutes in a, in a, in, in a, an office or like in, you know, in the facility and you get a real read on what the clubs, what importance they put on things, what they put on the wall, how they speak about it. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see, you know, some clubs you'll go in and you'll see the guys are not disciplined. They're all wearing different things, got their hoods on, got the earbuds in. You go to another club and boom, they're in their first three rows and they're ready to rock and they're ready to roll. And and you can see it. You 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 meet the the receptionist or the or the security guard out front and they're using the same vocabulary as the head coach in his pregame speech. And so the ability, and I've always said this, the ability for a club to create culture is more important than their strategy on the field. And, and I think the culture of your club will eat your strategy for breakfast. And so, because how you create culture is how you create a team. And so I'll give you this one, for instance, is a friend of mine was speaking uh, at one of the clubs at the Baltimore Ravens. And he said, you know, what is the purpose of the Baltimore Ravens? Right. Have I told you this story before? No, no. Okay. So what do you think that, that they said? He's talking to the whole team. He's, what's the purpose of the Baltimore Ravens? I don't know. Well, they said but to win the Super Bowl, right? Well, like, yeah, yeah, way, sure. Okay, Super yeah. But you know what he said? And he flipped on it and he said, no. He said, that is the consequence of your true purpose. The purpose of the Baltimore Ravens is to become a team. Mm. And if you truly become a team and you build a culture of a team, then the consequence of that is you'll win the Super Bowl. And, and they won the Super Bowl that year. So, but what's amazing about that is if you unpack that, is if your goal is to win, then he says, like, what happens when you make a mistake? Well, when someone makes a mistake and if your goal is to win, then you, you, you cannibalize each other. You know, you yell at each other. You're like, man, you blew it, man. You blew that coverage. You missed the tackle. But if your goal is to become a team, then you find that you're lifting each other up. Hmm. If someone makes a mistake, you compensate. You talk more, you communicate because my it's, 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 it flips the whole model on its head. 
like I'm here for transformation. I'm here to love my brother. And then because of that, man, we don't even have to worry about the guys on the other side because we're one, we're a team. And I think what happens is when you see teams that have and create culture like our New England Patriots, right? Yeah. They're, they're, you know, and I think that's why if you look at now the Texans, the Giants, the Dolphins, where all their coaches are from where? The Patriots. Mm-hmm. Everybody's trying to duplicate that culture. Yep. Now, and I agree, but you have to, here's the thing about culture. It has to be unique and authentic to you. You can't copy it. You can't copy it because I can't copy Bill Belichick's culture because his culture is based on his acumen as well. Mm-hmm. And so you could, you could say all the things that you want that he says, but if you don't have his brain and dissecting defenses doing all that, guys don't buy in the same way. So he, because of his acumen, has the ability to make a t- little bit of a tougher culture, but guys buy in because they know they're going to get a rank. And if you try to do that without having some of your expertise, the thing will fall apart. So it's culture is a unique and a cool thing. Now, if you translate that into the business world, do you think there's a direct parallel? Absolutely. Without question. Without question that the, the CEO, the man at the top, that that person's job, his job, her job is to create a culture, right, that lets people prosper. People prosper. People. And the byproduct of that is you will sell the widget or whatever it is. But I think if you create culture and culture will, will take care of itself. I'm telling you, the culture of your organization trumps your strategy. That's so and powerful. It, and, it, and it's and it's difficult to connect to because it's abstract. Yeah, but but like and let's say you're amazing. You can be I won't I don't want to use a real company as an example because I don't know, but Let's say you get the best company in the world and your strategy, you're ahead of the market and you're killing it, but your culture sucks, right? And people are miserable. It will eventually fall apart. It will eventually fall apart. You'll, you'll end up being the dinosaur, you know, because when people feel comfortable, that's when creativity and innovation happen. I love it. Any closing thoughts, any words of wisdom to wrap up? get vision you know like i had this this conversation with frank reich from the colts last year and here's here's something for you two visions equals division and so it is vital in life when you're with your wife your company your team that you clearly articulate your vision so if people don't get on board with that vision like i said two visions equals division right right and you have to work through that so I would say get wisdom, get insight, get vi- get vision at all costs because when you know where you're going, that's when you can form the habits to get there. Fantastic. Well, Keith, thanks for sharing this time with us. Love the conversation. Uh, good luck with the upcoming season and hope all, all goes well both for you and for the fans. Uh, so definitely like to see some football this year, even if the, even if the, the seats are empty in the stadium, would still yeah. want to see the game. And uh, so thanks for joining us. That was awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Anytime. All right. Thank you, Keith. Have a great night. Hey, you too. Wow. What an incredibly powerful conversation. Keith Elias has definitely figured out his formula for living and it's infectious. It certainly changed the way that I think about my life. 
Definitely feel free to connect with Keith on social media, on Facebook and various other platforms. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.